Good evening. Tonight we return to our study in our sermon series on the book of Galatians. We actually come to the end of the book of Galatians now in chapter 6. Would you please rise out of reverence for God's holy word? Again, that's Galatians chapter 6, and we'll be reading from verse 11 through to the end. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus." The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the living and active word of the living and true God, sharper than any two-edged sword. Please receive it as such. You may be seated. With this passage in Galatians, we come to the end of the book. In this final section, Paul so helpfully summarizes the main issues of this letter. And in a sense, as we'll see, he brings his argument to its logical climax and conclusion. In verse 16, Paul gives us a good phrase and a word that we can use to help understand this letter as a whole. He says, and as for all who walk by this rule. Paul is talking about a rule as a certain standard, which in context refers to the status of a new creation, and seeing things through the light of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that's translated here as rule is canony, or as we translate it and use it, it's the word canon. So we talk about the canon of Scripture, which refers to the 66 books, 39 of the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. That is our standard in canon. This word, it referred to in the time uh, something like a yardstick or a ruler by which you measure something straightness in accordance with an established norm. As I grew up in Pennsylvania, my next-door neighbor was my Uncle Dan, and we got very close. He's one of my best friends to these days. Uh, But my Uncle Dan was a freelance uh, contractor. He's very skilled at all sorts of things. And my mom always had all sorts of projects. So he would come and help my dad. And there's certain phrases which stick out in my mind. And one that he often would like to say is, it's as straight as a string line. Now, a string line is an ancient form of measurement that are used on projects. You take a string and you pull it tight. And you can use it whether you're making a concrete wall basin or a fence that you want to make sure is straight. You measure it up with that. You use a string line. And if you do it right, you get to say it's as straight as a string line and move on. 
Paul is using something very similar here with this concept of a canon. He is looking at the person of the, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought about what he says is a new creation. And from this, he calls on us to walk in a straight path according to this yardstick, in accordance with this canon. Everything we think, say, and do is now needs to take in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And looking at the standard of God's word interpreted through Christ as the rule by which we walk, we understand our need to submit to God's word and to trust in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And looking at this passage today, we will be tempted to reflect on our own failures to serve the Lord and to not base our standard of actions and thoughts in the light of God's word, but rather we try to fix things through our own pleasures and desires instead of walking in accordance with God's word. But in all of this, I want us rather to focus on the Lord's love and his faithfulness to us. We need to see that despite our failings, our failures, our faults, and our feelings, the Lord cares for us, and he forgives us in his Son. From this text of Scripture, we'll see that the only standard or rule by which we can walk is Scripture as it's revealed to us in the person of our Savior and his loving death for us and his life in us. So we'll consider this passage under two simple Headings. First, saving face, verses 11 through 13. And second, serving Christ, verses 14 through 18. Let's look at that first point, saving face. In the first half of chapter 6, Paul has directly applied his discussion of the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit to the particular pastoral situation going on in Galatia. He has told them that they need to stop having their rivalries. They need to stop having their infighting and bickering. And instead, they need to bear one another's burdens, restore sinners, and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is the love of Christ. Now he singles a transition in verse 11 saying, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's kind of a funny insertion here. And there's been a lot of speculation, but why did Paul say this at this time? Is he saying that he wrote the whole letter with his own hand? That's one way you could take this. Or is he saying that he is putting here a signature that this is him talking now? Uh, He does that in other letters where he says that I'm signing this with my own hand. Uh, You can see 2 Thessalonians for that. And moreover, why does he talk about how large his letters are? Uh, Some people like to think that this means that Paul had bad eyesight. This confirms what we thought earlier, and that so he wrote with big letters. Or this could have been an ancient equivalent, which we have some um, indication of this, that this was a way to make what we would have a bold print, or italicize, or... All caps, if you're that kind of person. I actually think, while all these are possible, I think there's a simpler answer. Paul is not a professional scribe with small and neat handwriting. Perhaps his letters were large and not tidy. 
Perhaps Paul is indicating by this large writing that he's agitated and emotionally involved and invested in this situation with the Galatians. I think that that's the best way to understand it. And I do think that Paul, since it was his common practice to use a scribe, he probably is just writing these last verses. But we can't know for certain. But everything he said would have been dictated and directed by the Holy Spirit, just put down by a scribe. In any case, what's important that we do know is that Paul is writing this closing section. And he's highlighting the importance of what he has already said and what he's about to say by saying, look with what bold writing I write this with, what what large letters. So he goes on to say, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Remember, Paul is referring here to the false teachers who are present among the Galatians, who are saying that something more is necessary for salvation besides faith in Christ. They are trying to force them to be circumcised as a necessity. And yes, you've heard me talk about this before. That's because Paul talks about it before, because he wants us to get it in our head that the only thing that's necessary for salvation is faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote the whole book about it. But he says, he points out those who are seeking to force and compel them to be circumcised. Throughout the extent of this letter, Paul has been theologically refuting this position, this theological position. But now he seeks to go beyond refuting the argument to looking at what are the motives of these false teachers? What are they really on about in Galatia? And he singles out two bad motives. He says, first, that they want to make a good showing in the flesh. The word translated here as make a good showing, it's rare. It's ev prosopeo. Uh, Paul might have actually coined the term himself. It literally means to make or to have a good face. Or, as I've said, indicated in the outline, we might say saving face. That you're just trying to make a good impression, an outward impression. It reminds one of Jesus' teaching, of those who he called uh, the scribes and the Pharisees who were hypocrites. And he said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man bones. So the first charge that Paul is making against these false teachers and their motives is their hypocrisy. And to this he adds a second charge, and that is cowardice. He says that they want to force you to be circumcised only so that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The reason why these false teachers want to make a good showing, they want to save face with their fellow Jewish countrymen who are unbelievers, they want to do this by forcing the Galatians to be circumcised so that they themselves might not be persecuted persecuted. Think about who's saying this. Paul, the one-time Pharisee and arch enemy of the church, him who in this very letter says, I was seeking to destroy the church of God. Now he is on the other end, the receiving of persecution, as you'll even talk about, and he's calling out these hypocrites, these cowards who are not willing to suffer for the Lord, and instead they're taking their false teaching and they're harming the people of God by adding a burden which the Lord has not added. Moreover, he criticized even more of their hypocritical behavior in saying that 
for they don't even keep the law. In verse 13 he states, for even those who are circumcised, likely referring to these false teachers, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Throughout Galatians, Paul has been telling them that circumcision is just one aspect of the law. And if you take on that one aspect, you are obliged to keep all of the law. Obviously, these false teachers aren't doing that. They're not even living in Jerusalem. They're living in Galatia. They aren't doing the regular festivals. And we can see through their bad behavior that they are not fulfilling the law themselves. This is similar to what Paul will talk about in Romans 2, where he'll say that you who boast in the law, do you not rob from temples, etc., etc.? And not only do they boast in their own circumcision, but Paul says that they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. The picture is crude here. I trust I don't have to explain it too much. It reminds me of David's bride price that he gave to Saul, the trophies that he won. Something similar is happening here, and Paul is calling them out. But these false teachers, they didn't really care about keeping the law or behaving righteously. They were playing a numbers game, trying to win as many over to their faction And as hypocritical cowards, as Paul is calling them, they were seeking to boast in the flesh of the Galatians to the detriment of their spiritual well-being, the very opposite of what faithful teachers of God's word should be doing. I think, sadly, that probably sounds familiar to you over the course of church history. The false teachers in Galatia were influencing the church there to doubt their standing in the Lord and to seek to do works of the law to supplement their faith. They were doing this simply as people pleasers, out of fear of being persecuted by fellow Jews, by the unbelieving section of it. They are not willing to take up the cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they pervert the teaching of the true gospel to avoid that. To them, the cross was a stumbling block and a source of shame. So they perverted the gospel and added their own traditions. Likewise, this is a constant threat in the life of the church. To one degree or another, even all of us try to save face and act hypocritically. And in fear of humiliation and fear of persecution, we avoid testifying for Christ and suffering with him and for him. Instead, at times, we compromise our beliefs and conform to the cultural expectations around us. And we need to be careful with that, particularly when it comes to our worship of God, not giving in, and our teaching about God, not giving in to the expectations of the culture around us, but being faithful, even if that means suffering for Christ. That is what we ought to do, because we must be willing to suffer with Christ, because we need to serve Christ, which brings us to our next point. We've just looked at saving face, but now let's consider serving Christ. Paul has just mentioned the false teacher's desire for boasting and that it was a fleshly boasting to boast in the circumcised flesh of the Galatians and in their own power to persuade them over to their false teaching. All of this is a desire to save face with their unbelieving Jewish comrades 
and to avoid persecution. Here Paul contrasts this worldly boasting in the flesh with another form of boasting. You notice he says in verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Understand that boasting was very much a part of Paul's Greco-Roman culture, which was a culture of honor and shame. And this was true both for Jews and Gentiles. And circumcision is a good example of this. This was a time of public bathhouses, you understand. And it was a source of real stigma and persecution that the, the Greeks saw this practice of the Jews of circumcision as a barbaric practice and a source of shame. And they mocked them, and so much so that they had to invent a reverse surgery to try to erase the marks, and some Jews capitulated in this way. It was a serious source of shame and stigma to some. On the other side of things, such as in Galatians, the Jews saw circumcision as a sign of God's ultimate blessing and favor on them, which distinguished them from all others, those Gentile sinners. This is just one example of cultural markers and boundaries which led to honor or shame, saving face or prideful boasting. And Paul is trying to reorient their thinking of boasting in this culture and have them understand what it looks like to be in Christ and how we could boast properly. For Paul, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has reconstituted reality and has relativized all other cultural classifications and differential demarcations. The cross, which was seen by Romans and Greeks as the most shameful form of death and by Jews as being a sign of God's ultimate curse, this has now become the grounds for boasting. So Paul says, far be it from me, to boast in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas the false teachers wanted to boast in the flesh, Paul knows that the only ground of boasting is found in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the cross that the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. You notice the similarity of phrasing that Paul has said similar things throughout this book of Galatians. Uh, recall that wonderful passage in 2.20 where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It also recalls Paul's definitive declaration in Galatians 5.24 that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here Paul expands on this theme and even broadens it, saying that the cross of Christ, through the cross of Christ, Christians have had the world crucified to them and they to the world. Therefore, he no longer lives and thinks in accordance with the opinions and the systems of the world and their evaluations. This belongs to the old creation which was corrupted by sin, such as that boasting culture of honor and shame. But Paul is saying that that has been crucified to him. And now what matters is new creation. So Paul states in verse 15, 
For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Again, this recalls Galatians 5, 6, where Paul stated, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And in 6.15, Paul shows us the context in which faith works through love, and that is in the context of the new creation, the participation in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is bringing about. That is where faith works through love. Moreover, there are parallel passages in Paul's other letters which help us understand. You can look at Romans 2, 28 through 29, where Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Through the power of the new creation by which Christ has been raised from the dead and by which He sends forth His Spirit to give us new life, He brings about an inward transformation and circumcision of our heart. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5, 16-17, Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. I really don't like that translation. That's not what Paul is saying. Because we take this to think that I'm an individual new creation. And we turn it into this concept of reinventing ourselves. No. Paul literally says, if anyone is in Christ... New creation, full stop. In other words, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and union with Him brings about the new creation life which is to come, even in the present by faith, as we are united together corporately as a part of this new creation. It is true that you are a new creation, but it's a better translation to do it that way. Lost my notes there. That is the same point which Paul's making here, though. In Galatians 6, he says, These physical and cultural categories of worth, Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, slave and free, etc., etc., these all belong to the old creation, corrupted by sin with its systems of values. But as those who are united to Christ by faith, we are participants in the new creation by the Spirit, Faith in the crucified Christ is the only currency of worth in God's economy of grace, as John Barclay might put it. And understanding this reality and participating in this reality by the Spirit, it changes everything about who we are and how we value things in this world, how we think and behave. So Paul states in verse 16, And as for all you who walk by this role. Again, that is the Greek word translated as canon, from which we get our English concept. Paul is saying that our canon is not the old creation, not what the world values, but the new creation revealed in the resurrection of Christ. We do not share the same system of values as our culture, the world in which we live, for we understand all of that reality now through the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this canon or rule, it's not something that is merely cognitive. 
or something that we can only give mental assent to. It is a rule by which we must walk, a standard in which we must walk narrowly and straightly. For those who walk in this new creational reality by faith in Christ and through the powerful working of God's Spirit, Paul says this prayer of blessing, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. There have been different ways to understand this prayer. Some think that Paul is praying two different blessings, one on the church and one on the unbelieving Israel. And so that we'd have peace on the church, but mercy on unbelieving Israel. Others will still say that, no, it's talking about peace beyond the Gentile believers and mercy upon Jewish believers. I don't think either of those are the better option. I think what Paul is actually saying here, and this would be a better translation, that peace and mercy be upon them, that is the church, and even upon, even upon the Israel of God, exegetically describing the church as the Israel of God. This is clear, I think, because Christ is the true seed of Abraham, as Paul has been going on about, and that these and the church who have faith of Abraham are sons and daughters of Abraham. It's so much so that those who have been baptized into Christ, we say now that there's no more Jew or Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. No, Paul is not reversing his argument which he has made throughout this letter and now differentiating between Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. Rather, Paul is bringing his argument to its logical conclusion and climax. The church of God, made up of believing Jews and Gentile, is the true Israel of God. This distinction between Israel according to the flesh and the Israel of faith was even forecasted in chapter 4 as believers were called children of the Jerusalem, which is above, that is our mother. Here Paul draws things to conclusion. It says in verse 17, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Here Paul is referring to the false teachers, that they not bother or place another burden on him but even also to the Galatians themselves, asking them to stop falling for this false teaching and bringing this trouble and burden of heart on Paul. He is asking them that no one would continue to trouble him. And he says, for I bear in my body the marks of Christ. The words translated as marks is stigmata, which refers to the branding of a slave or even a tattoo which showed marker of ownership. Paul is saying that he bears the mark in his body of a slave and a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is, of course, referring to the scars which his body bore as proof that he was a slave to Christ. Later, Paul would suffer much more, but we know that even at this point, he has suffered greatly at the hands of the Jews, as you can read about in Acts 13 through 14. Paul bears in his body proof that he is a faithful disciple of Christ. Unlike the false teachers who sought to make a good show in the flesh and to avoid persecution, Paul gladly suffered for Christ and his gospel, and he has his scars as evidence of his faithfulness in ministry. Let no one trouble me. 
because I bear in my body the marks of Christ. He then simply closes the letter with a Christological benediction, saying in verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul began this letter with the proclamation of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he ends this letter by calling for mercy and peace upon the church and for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ over them. In between these greetings and these blessings, Paul has had some really harsh things to say. Yet throughout this letter, Paul has maintained a brotherly affection for them in the Spirit, referring to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's how he ends this letter on that note, confident of their obedience in the Lord. And with this, we come to the end of one of Paul's seminal letters, In these verses, Paul contrasts two forms of boasting. The one based in the old creation, corrupted by sin, and the other based in the new creation, which comes into the present by faith in the person and work of Christ. The false teachers among the Galatians, through hypocrisy and cowardice, are seeking to force the Galatians to capitulate their faith, to be circumcised, merely so that they can avoid suffering for Christ, and that they may boast in these trophies. In response, Paul calls on them to consider themselves and all of reality, not through these old categories of the old creation, but to see themselves through the lens of the cross. No longer are they to follow the world's patterns of systems of value. Rather, they are to boast in the cross of Christ and follow the pattern of the way of the cross. Near 2,000 years ago, this text speaks afresh to us. So often we hypocritically try to save face and preserve an outward reputation. So often through cowardice we fall in conformity to the world rather than the way of the cross. As we come to the end of this letter, it is good for us to reflect on what it is our role for walking. What, on what basis do you evaluate your worth and your standard? What directs your manner of life. In Galatia, they had begun well, having trusted in Christ and received his spirit, but false teachers came and drove them away from Christ, at least in a large part, and caused them to look to themselves and worldly things to find their status, to find their standard and worth. But we face the same pressures, don't we? We know about the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone and by grace alone, but we struggle with sin and guilt on a daily basis. And not trusting in Christ, we seek different things which make us feel like we have value and that we're making up for our sins. As we have asked throughout this letter, I ask again, whereby do you find your status, your worth? What is it that makes you feel good? Is it your intelligence? Is it your professional performance at school, at work? Is it a career? Is it your personal aesthetics, your strength, or your looks? Is it your family or friendships? In what do you boast? In what do you find value? These are a lot of questions, and there's many more which we could ask. But thankfully, this letter shows us that there's only one answer and one solution 
And that is faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and boasting in His cross. If you have never known the Lord, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and received the comfort of His Spirit, I encourage you, stop trying to find your identity and worth or value in this world or in the things of this world. Trust me, they'll never give you the satisfaction for your heart that you so desire. If you have trusted in Christ but are still struggling under the weight of your sin and you're seeking to establish your own grounds through boasting, I would just encourage you to find Christ's strength in your weakness. Boast in the cross of Christ and know that the world has been crucified to you and you to this world. When the Satan comes with those accusations, you can say with Paul, all that's true, and with Luther, many more things. But it's been crucified on the cross. It's been nailed to the cross. And we know that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have done nothing to deserve this. We have done everything to deserve your wrath. Yet you have given us this book which tells us of the glorious truth that you have sent forth your Son to become a curse for us. That he was crucified and we crucified with him. And that you give us new life, you give us strength, you give us your very spirit by which we call to you as our Father. Lord, we thank you for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pattern of behavior they set before us in the inscripturated word which seals that for us. So that we might walk by this standard and not by the standards of the world. Lord, the flesh is weak. The world and the devil are strong. But we know that he who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from seeking to find any identity or any status of worth in anything other than knowing you and the power of the resurrection, to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and the strength which he gives. Lord, help us never to boast in the flesh, but always and ever to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as we continue this worship that we would do it in a way that exalts Jesus Christ and which shows his power to save. It's in his precious and most holy name that we pray to you, Father. Amen.